We need to align the core business of families with the core business of professionals. And core business is food and housing and warmth, as well as parenting capacity. The two are interlinked. When you have a lot of people who are living a paycheck away from poverty, then you know you have shifting dynamics of vulnerability and risk, which cannot be captured by there's the failing and the feckless over there, and then there's the rest of us. It's a much more precarious situation. One of the things that I think is really important for child protection professionals to realise, and we found this in our research, is that a poor child in an affluent local authority has more chance of coming into care than a poor child in a poor local authority. Hello, I'm Wendy Thurigood, the Chair of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Breed Featherstone about poverty and child protection in an uncertain future. Breed is a professor of social work at the University of Huddersfield. She was a member of Child Welfare Inequalities Project, a research project that investigated the relationships between poverty and children's chances of becoming involved with child protection systems and being looked after. And she is currently working with a number of local authorities on developing poverty awareness in children's services and local authorities more generally. Breed has an international reputation in the areas of gender, fathers and child protection and has advised on reforming child protection nationally and internationally. Most recently, she has co-authored the highly influential book, Reimagining Child Protection Towards Human, Social Work and Families. Welcome, Breed. Thank you for joining us today and taking time out of your busy schedule. Shall we start with your journey of introduction into this area of research? Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. My name is Bridget Featherston and I'm a professor of social work at the University of Huddersfield. And many, many years ago, I trained as a social worker and worked in the field initially with young offenders and then in the child protection field as a social worker and manager before becoming an academic. So over the years, I've done research many times around how people experience child protection services. I have particular interest in fathers and how fathers are or aren't engaged with by our child protection services. In more recent years, I was lucky enough to be involved with a large study that was funded by the Nuffield Foundation and led by Professor Paul Bywaters. It was called the Child Welfare Inequalities Project, and it looked at the link between a child's chances of coming into care or being subject to child protection procedures and levels of deprivation. So it was about, yeah, yeah. I, in fact, we yeah. had spoken at a number of the conferences when you were BASCAN. We've spoken at a few of those yes, conferences. Right. Yeah. 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 And so our headline findings in England was that a child in the poorest decile, you know, the area level deprivation decile in England, a child there was over 10 times more likely to come into care than a child in the most affluent decile in the country. So we called that an inequality in the same way as you'd think about a health inequality or an educational inequality. So we did this very large quantitative study across the UK, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And in every country within the country, that link held. You know, there was a very clear association between a child's chances of coming into care and levels of deprivation. What was interesting, and you might want to ask me about it if we have time, was that actually when you compared, though, Northern Ireland had very low levels of children in care, but high levels of poverty. And that's a very interesting research question, which we might want to talk about, actually. Mm. The other thing we found is there was a gradient. So the more you increased, and this is very important in the context of the pandemic, 
the more you increase levels of deprivation, the more you increased rates if that makes sense. It's a bit like a ladder, really. So that's why it's so worrying about the pandemic, because the more you increase rates of deprivation, the more you increase demand upon your services, and the more you increase the likelihoods of children coming into care. And the other thing is we then did, because quantitative research is interesting, but there are so many stories behind the what's going on, aren't there, about, well, why? Why is this happening? You know, are social workers biased against the poor? You know, what's going on? Are poor parents more neglectful? All that kind of thing. But we did do quite a good a lot of qualitative research in local authorities. And it was mainly in that round with the social workers and looking at case conferences and looking at files and all that kind of thing and observing decision making. So we didn't talk to families in that. We didn't have funding for that. What we did find is that poverty and the kind of associated features with it, such as poor housing, etc., had kind of disappeared from assessments and from decision making. And although everyone worked in poor areas, it was like what we called the wallpaper of practice. And you've probably heard that phrase, the poverty of the wallpaper of practice. It was unremarkable and unremarked upon because it was just always there. And the only time actually that people would ever talk about poverty or affluence or anything like that was if they had to go and visit a richer family. They'd suddenly say, oh, goodness, maybe I should talk to the solicitor or maybe I should put my best clothes on or whatever, because it was quite unusual. So we found that what social workers defined as core business, and that was their terms, core business was the assessment of risk or parenting capacity. So they would say to us, and this is way pre-COVID, they would say to us, well, I do refer to food banks. Of course I do, but it's not core business. Our core business is assessing risk and assessing the parenting capacity. And I suppose one of the things that we, when we were talking about the research afterwards, and we've done lots and lots of training and presenting on it, is we've been saying to social workers and other professionals, we need to align the core business of families with the core business of professionals. And core business is food and housing and warmth, as well as parenting capacity. The two are interlinked. So that's how I started to really drill down into what was going on around poverty and inequality in our society. And of course, then COVID comes along and has intensified my interest in this. Massively, isn't it? It's heightened lots of areas that I think were hidden. I think people have looked deeper during COVID trying to reach out, haven't they? And like you, I think it's really polarised a lot of concerns, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there are two areas I would identify that are of relevance to child protection professionals. One is housing, because all through this pandemic, the home has become intensified in significance for us, hasn't it? We've been aware of how warm or how cold or how many rooms we have, whether we have a garden. And many of us have said to each other, I can work at home, it's fine. I've got plenty of space, etc. But it is a heightened real awareness of people who don't have, particularly people with children. So one of the things that I've been looking at with colleagues at Huddersfield is insecure accommodation, parents trying to keep children safe in bed and breakfast, you know, in terms of not only the fear of infection, but also safeguarding risks. And we do know as well, coming back to the topic of poverty, that we've got an awful lot of families in the private rented sector, and that is a driver of child poverty, as well as often being unsuitable. We have just written a paper, which I hope does get published, which has looked at the links between poor housing and children's development and welfare and physical and mental. And we've been working with a charity in Greater Manchester that has done a great deal of good work on that. So first thing is housing. But the second is, as you know, only too well, is the devastating impact the virus has had on black and minority ethnic communities. 
And again, when you look at that, you realize that there are so many issues interlinked there. Mm -hmm. Occupational choices and arrangements, they're not necessarily choices, but, you know, people in the front line, they've been overexposed, haven't they, and underprotected. At underlying health inequalities that were hidden and weren't the subject of enough research, racism in the health sector, a racism in housing, overcrowded housing, and people being on the front line. And crucially, in relation to housing, not being able to self-isolate when they're ill because they can't afford to lose the money. They can't yeah. afford not to feed their children. So I think one of the things I feel very strongly is that we're getting a sense of how inequalities are all interlinked. Poverty is linked to housing, is linked to health is linked to mental health. But equally, we've seen another cohort, haven't we? People that have lost their jobs and consequently lost their homes because they can't afford to pay the mortgage. We had that light relief for three months. But there's people that physically lost their wage, two wages gone. And I've known of people, particularly around here, that have ended up living in caravans. And that's a cohort that weren't on our radar because they were high earners but had no savings and perhaps in rented accommodation and that can't afford to carry on, or they've had to rent their home to have some sort of income. So there is this other element that we consider that won't necessarily be coming forward asking for help. They're too proud. Yes. Although it may be that they won't come forward for help, but that their children may become visible and issues for their children may become visible. I mean, what it highlights to me, I've always worried about a tendency for Sometimes government, to be fair, particularly since 2010, a tendency for government to almost see child protection is about a small number of highly stressed, almost dysfunctional families over there. Whereas I think that when you have a very precarious labour market, you have a crisis really in social housing. We've had a housing crisis for quite a while. When you have a lot of people who are living a paycheck away from poverty, maybe a relationship breakdown away from mental health issues and homelessness then, you know, you have shifting dynamics of vulnerability and risk, which cannot be captured by there is the failing and the feckless over there. And then there's the rest of us. It's a much more precarious situation. And I think, you know, going back to the heading for this podcast, it is an uncertain future for an awful lot of us. Then the other thing I would throw into the mix is that the services are going to be really facing really big financial issues themselves, really massive. There was a bit of money made available for local authorities, but they've spent way over that on trying to support their communities. And I think that we're in for very tricky times, sadly. And the redeployment, a lot of frontline health workers were redeployed. So you had health visitors redeployed naturally because of the skills that they actually have. They have ITU skills and equally midwives weren't doing home visits. So we're missing that early element. I've seen cases of babies that have failed to thrive because the mum had an inability to breastfeed and was just saying to everyone on the phone, yeah, everything was fine. And it wasn't until the eight week check it was picked up. So there are these cases that are coming through that aren't deliberate neglect, but it's almost professional neglect because we haven't been able to offer the services. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I know that in the absence of that kind of involvement and because of lockdown as well, I mean, it was very hard for women giving birth during lockdown. For many women, they did feel incredibly isolated because they were cut off from peers as well and cut off from those naturally occurring support systems, you know, around going for a coffee with the mums in the church or whatever. So, yes, Mm. no, I agree with you. Mm. One of the things that's most heartening, because I don't want to end up being despairing, one of the things that's really heartening is that we're finding, and by we I mean the researchers I've worked with, we are finding a tremendous interest and appetite among 
not just local authorities, but also the third sector, for us to come and help them to think about how they make their services more poverty aware, how they ensure that they're doing the best they can with the limited resources they have. One of the biggest issues about poverty is the shame that's attached to it. And that might become worse for people who are newly impoverished. And so it's very important that all our services are able to, and this is a hard task, how we make sure that our services are able to cope with shame and deal in a very respectful way with people. I mean, it's not easy because people will hide things. They'll hide that they're not managing, etc. There are real issues for relationships between parents and their children. Again, I know some local authorities are really worried about the amount of debt their parents are getting into because they're not able to say to their children, no, you can't have this because they're worried about their kids getting bullied at school. So there's a lot of debt being accumulated to manage poverty. So the kids get what they need. I think it's reducing the stigma, isn't it? And changing some of the terminology that professionals use in relation to, I really like early intervention and early support. So We know that food banks, the need for food banks and housing and emergency housing has gone up. And it's about how we can actually just, I almost want to recreate the early help hubs like the old family centres used to work in a very non-threatening way to actually reach that cohort that perhaps wouldn't be looking for services. As I say, change of circumstances, they need food banks. And how else can we look at what's going on to prevent them going down and down and not asking for help or hiding it, making it more transparent. Yeah, I mean, I think you're completely right. I think we have to find ways. And it might be that we have to be really creative because of the financial situations. We have to find ways of developing more community-based resources that are non-stigmatizing and that are accessible. And that people feel a sense of ownership about as well and don't feel scared about it going to. I mean, I did an awful lot of work years ago with Sure Start Centres, and I was a really big fan of Sure Start Centres. And where they worked well, they were an invaluable source of support to families. And they were, of course, extremely well resourced as well. We're in a different situation now. Part of my work, I do work with local community organisations who are providing that kind of help to young families. And it is totally invaluable. I mean, for example, just doing a bit of yoga and mindfulness with mothers you know, it costs nothing, but is really helpful to people to manage their stress and anxiety about what's going on. You know, Marcus Rashford has now started on the reading, hasn't he? Which I think is really important, really important. So you're right. I think the days of Sure Start aren't going to come back. We don't have those kind of resources, but there's some really good work being done in Camden, for example, by Early Help. Becca Dove is the manager there. She works for Camden Children's Services or for Camden Local Authority, but works in hand in glove with the community offering support to families and engaging families. Yeah, I'm a great believer in early help. If we can get that foot in that door and really get that engagement and support, as I say, in a non-threatening way, I think we've really moved away, haven't we, from when people make the threat of social care. It's about how we work in partnership and who is the best person to work with that family. And I think that has stuck with professionals because it's not always the social worker the practice nurse might be the biggest advocate for that family. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the training that I've been doing around lockdown is actually working with the practices that are seen as non-threatening or perhaps the ambulance man that walks in that's completely non-threatening and how we can get sort of third sectors supporting those families. That has made some really big difference to some families. So not putting it at that level and just saying this is what we can do and they don't see it as threatening and they agree to work with you. And I think if we can 
offer little incentives, it does make a big difference. I mean, baby massage, you talked about things online, baby massage, speech and language that's still being delivered online has actually had a better reach. And you're seeing those families sort of more often. So the work is actually being done in between and the parents are better engaged. So it's that hidden sort of element that perhaps we're working more closely with. So COVID has had some benefits, hasn't it, in relation to some positives in actually shining a light on this whole subject. Um, Yeah, it's shone a light on inequalities in our society. It has intensified them, but it has shone a light on them. There are an awful lot of people now who think we need to build back differently. And I do like the way in which there is, in many places, a new relationship within communities because people did pull together to kind of deliver food parcels, to make sure that people weren't isolated. And also, I think that people are very, by people, I mean professionals in the third sector and mutual aid groups. I think we're quite pleased at how agile we were. You know, it was such a shock to the system, but yes, people got it geared up really fast. I think at the minute, everyone's very tired and very exhausted, linked to the weather and stuff. And there's a kind of fatigue. But I do feel, well, certainly, you know, the area I know best, which is social work and the sector I know best, which has been traditionally the local authority. I think there was always a sense of, you know, oh, local authorities are too difficult to turn around. They're bureaucratic. They can't get themselves geared up fast. And actually, they proved they could. And social workers, I think, adapted in many ways in a very quick agile fashion and there were benefits there definitely were benefits around digital engagement with young people young people engaged with their reviews better they engaged with all those bureaucratic things that they don't like normally there was definitely a sense in which there was a new energy you know whatsapp or whatever but i would like to take it in the direction you are saying I would like us to move much more into being more community-based and into thinking about who, not only who's best placed to help, but also what's the capacity in the community to help as well. Yes. It's not just about professional help. It's also about how can a group of mums support each other when they're struggling. And I think if we can do more of that, that really makes a difference. And I've always struggled. I've been involved in making improvements in serious case reviews for years And I've always said, unless the community really knew what was the outcome of this and how they could have got involved earlier, because the more that we've involved community in my last recent serious case reviews, we've had a really positive feedback and they've supported campaigns. And then they take ownership because it's not the professionals that are doing the harm. It was happening within that community. So it's de-stigmatising what that was all about and trying to get them to engage in taking on the learning and the prevention. And it's come into its own in relation to contextual safeguarding with the county lines, isn't it? And I think if we can just disseminate that down to Mm. all elements. I mean, I always say that if child protection was seen as a real major public health issue, such as COVID, we could reduce it because we would pull together and make a, a bigger difference. And as I say, the inequalities will always be there, but it's how we reduce the stigma of an inequality, isn't it? I'm glad you mentioned contextual safeguarding because we, as a result of our work around poverty and a number of other research projects, crucially my research around listening to women and men and their experiences, we've written a book called A Social Model, which is quite a lot of links with public health approaches. It's just more grounded in a bottom-up approach coming from families rather than necessarily coming from professionals. 
But we are now working with Carleen and the contextual safeguarding team around how we might bring the social model and contextual safeguarding together. And we've written a briefing on that. And we're wow. going to be doing some work in a local authority. Because contextual safeguarding, you're absolutely correct, it took attention away from the focus on the family and the child and the risk factors there, which were, it was often very unfair to the parents, wasn't it? Because they were desperate for help. And so it looked at the context, at the ecology of what was going on. And we argue that we need to bring that back into younger children as well. So it's not just about doing the household visit to that mother and father and looking at what's happening in that house. It's about looking at what's happening on that street, what's happening in that community, where is the church? Who does she talk to on a Saturday night when we're all locked away from our work and having our nice times or whatever? Who does she go to when she's lonely? All that kind of thing. And we think that's really crucial. It's really understanding the threats and risks to that community, isn't it? And then working in partnership, working with the local police and to actually listen to the threats and risks you know, how they're going to be borrowing money and what pressure that then puts exactly. on them. Exactly. You know, there is simple things if we thought out of the box and thought wider. Well, yeah. in some ways, we've been our own worst enemies. By we, I mean people who have been involved in child protection in the narrowest sense, really. Because what we've said to people is, if you're worried about your neighbour, you hear the baby crying, we've said to them, pick up the phone and ring. Ring children's yeah. services or ring the NSPCC. We haven't said to them, have you thought about going round and offering her a cup of tea? And yeah. uh, there's a project I really like in the States called Communities That Care, where it's based on reciprocity. I would go around and offer her a cup of tea, but she'd come and help me with my computer. And so that kind of, you know, developing intergenerational solidarity as well. So, yeah, we've wandered away from poverty, though, haven't we? <laughs> we have. We're trying to get a solution. Just on that note, one of the best projects that I ever worked with was people that had retired, perhaps a bank manager or whatever field, you know, somebody that had a long career supporting. I worked in an area which had very bad wards and very affluent wards. And part of the project was to actually support the people in the poorer wards, but in a holistic way. So we got the bank managers working with people to help budgeting. And you noticed a difference in their presentation, their engagement. There was secondhand clothes that have been donated so if they're having an interview they would equally be given interview coaching and it really did sow that seed to sort of bring that community up but equally break down the barriers and so when you look at poverty there is always the us and them isn't there yeah and I think if we can blend it and get more acceptance and I think little projects like that can be quite enlightening to actually understand that people aren't deliberately in this poverty state are they no, just, it's about poor circumstances rather than poor choices. Yes. I mean, the, the majority of children in poverty in this country have parents who are working. They have at least one parent who's working. So that's really important. We've baked in insecurity into the workforce. You know, a lot of parents are having different levels of wage security. You know, some weeks they're working, some weeks they're not. The benefit system, as we know, has been chipped away at. You know, we got a bit of help during Corona, but, you know, universal credit, you have to wait five weeks. There is such strong evidence that links that wait for universal credit to the rise in use of food banks. You know, introducing universal credit has really fed in food insecurity. Going back to your point, though, about uh, rich and poor living beside each other, one of the things that I think is really important for child protection professionals to realise, and we found this in our research, is that a poor child in an affluent local authority has more chance of coming into care than a poor child in a poor local authority. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. But one of the things that's really interesting is how stressful it is to be poor in an affluent local authority. 
And because we live in a society that's very status ridden and that is very consumerist and I would love to change it. But there is an issue about children looking at what their peers have or what the guy down the road has or whatever. And that then fuels the rising debt that I mentioned. Inequality in itself breeds status envy and anxiety and is really poor for our health, actually, and our mental health as well as our physical health. There's a really strong social sciences literature on that. I've I've never looked at that in that way before. I've never. So it would be interesting to read more around that subject. Well, the book, that's the really good book. And it's incredibly easy to read because it's really quite direct, is The Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. Right. Yeah. And they've developed a whole pile of work. I've just been reading their stuff on coronavirus. The first book was very, they're public health people. They're epidemiologists. So they look at all these indicators across countries and within states in the US. And their thesis at its simplest is the more unequal a society is, the more you're going to have a whole host of all the problems we worry about. Mental health issues, violence, obesity, imprisonment, homicide. There is one study that actually argues that domestic abuse is higher in more unequal societies. And then they, in the second book, they look more at what's the mechanism? Why is that? And it looks at shame. It's called the inner level. It looks at how in an unequal society, people do not feel like they're all in the same boat. There are big divisions. There is less trust. There's less social cohesion. There's more status anxiety. There's more worry about how, because we're social animals and we worry about how people see us. So if we think we're being looked down upon because we don't have a nice house, we don't have the right clothes, all those kinds of things, it increases our anxieties. And the crucial mechanism is around shame, feeling shame. I mean, poverty is shaming anyway, but inequality is particularly problematic in that respect. So the second book is The Inner Level, which is more psychological. And there's a lot of evidence to back this up, you know. Yeah. Do you think now, though, we're putting a different stance on it because people that have had quite high paid jobs that may have lost their jobs? We're going to see a shift in the equality, aren't we? Yeah, I'm really hoping that we will see a shift away. I mean, we need it for the climate anyway, that we will see a shift away from consumption and more of a, a recognition of our fragility as human beings on this planet and the need to be more frugal with our resources, all our resources. I'm really hoping We have responsibility, but we have to make sure that we are led well in that respect as well, that we don't assume we can just go back to how it was. Yeah. And I think with that, some of the shame of poverty would disappear as well if we had a different understanding of material goods and consumption and, well, working together, really working together. Yes, it does go back to that working together, doesn't it? And that shift of what you think is important, really, isn't it? I I just wonder, I I know we're seeing a lot about the clothing industry for a start, but people aren't aren't buying those sorts of things. But will they rush back to it when they can and when they get their first paycheck? You know, it's it's whether people maintain the good from the pressures that we've been under. Yeah, and we have to shift the economy so that those people do get different types of jobs, you know, because all these jobs that are being lost... There are a lot of them are women's jobs, you know, that in turn impacts upon children and children's poverty, whether we like it or not. It's still women who are very central to children's welfare, you know, and also, of course, the figures on poverty show how focused and disproportionately it is within lone parents who tend to be women. So there are real issues around these women losing their jobs. Right. I think we've covered a lot of ground. As I say, this is just a a starter for one to direct people to think more about the subject. So I really appreciate your openness and the conversation. It's been fascinating. I wish we could talk longer. So thank you. Thank you for giving up your time. And I 
look forward to the report coming out and some further work. There's lots of work, the thousand and one days, there's lots of areas. I so I've just come from a research document. So that's looking at children under COVID. So there's lots of exciting research that I yeah. think is coming out. So um, yeah, sure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want to discuss in future episodes, email us at hello at aacpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.